Oh, ladies and gentlemen, don't you ever feel that you just need to take your kilometers long convoy and just take a walk? I feel you. I feel you, Wagner. In the words, public enemies, Chuck D. <laughs> Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in circumstances, and I did leave you with the dope potter step too, last week anyway, um, left you with a couple of long reads, please give those a spin if you haven't, really good pieces um, covered there, and um, yeah man, been an interesting week as I've been gone, you know, the submarine shit, uh, the Wagner shit. Uh yeah, just um, just a just a bunch of stuff happening. <laughs> just a bunch of stuff happening. TikTokers going to a fucking Shein factory with nobody in it, and for some reason, making propaganda for Shein. It's just great. It's just great. It's really, really, really fun. Just uh, just just love watching the world go by, uh, just slowly decaying in several ways. But anyway, with that said, you know, it's just um, one of those weeks. Um, did some house sitting last week for the first time um, with a couple of youths inside. And um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Pretty much kind of, uh, I guess, what I expected, you know. Um, teenagers being teenagers, young teenager and a slightly older teenager, you know what I mean? They're just doing shit, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to say the least. But. It was all good. I can't complain. Got some work done. Um, as I did that, um, played played basketball for the first time in uh, since I don't know the first time uh, the first year of uni. Um, so that was that was fun. <laughs> just to just to realise that oh yeah, I had no jump shot. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> Completely forgot. I have no jump shot. <laughs> but I can still defend, so it's all good. And uh, yeah, I got I got. I got pass a decent. I got I got a decent decent pass as well. Like I, I was the, I was dishing. I was dishing a few times. So I'm just gonna, just put it at that. And they are witnesses. I play with some dudes as well, and they are witnesses that I won the game with a freaking backwards layup. Didn't even look at the rim. Just flicked that shit up, and it went in. So um, consider me retired from uh, basketball in any capacity because I can't can't get any better than that. Can't get any better than that in my mind. Um, but yeah, man. Also took some pictures, um, got got a couple of good posts out um, in during the during the weekend. I uh, went to a local folk festival, which um, the music was not for me personally, but um, fascinating regardless, nevertheless. And uh, good vibes, good vibes at least. So I can't complain about that. But with that said, we have a show to get to. Um, so let's get the agenda up. What do we have? We have two society, which are both related to Windrush, um, which um, was, which happened. Um, well, the Wind Windrush Day was last week, um, but obviously since I dropped a couple of long reads, one related to Windrush and one not, um, I still wanted to give some Windrush love as well. Um, so here I am going to do that as well near the back, uh, the second half of the show. Um, so that's the two society, and we also have a music and film to get started. So, with that said, 
all made before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes as well as the music and podcasts under the 5 EPN. Um, DITD just dropped on Tuesday and we did an episode on cannabis, which is really just one of those episodes that um, I'll remember simply because, you know, I gained a perspective. You know, I gained a, a perspective of my own because there's some things in there's some things you go about in life and you just take the words of other people because you can't be asked to actually form an opinion yourself. You know, what I mean, I feel like a lot of us do that. And, um, you know, I just didn't really see cannabis as anything much more than a meme from like the 2000s. And, you know, doing I know he's still doing stuff, but I, I don't really check for him that much. But then I actually listen to his music and, you know, there's some actual decent stuff in there. There's also some wacky stuff in there. There's also some god-awful stuff in there. But there's some good, there's some gems in there as well. So, uh, and the story of him is all the more fascinating because of it. Um, just uh, with, with all that context, it makes it so much more fascinating. Um, but yeah, go spin that as well. All in the full shows as well as the other five VPN shows. However, that said, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where the five victims in Ocean Gate sub implosion will be honoured with two museum ceremonies, just rewarding hubris now. Great, love to see it. Uh, Russian PMC Wagner Group stage a one-day mutiny, and there is plenty more where that came from. But I'm just going to leave it at that because that's basically what happened. Uh, you know, put simply, uh, a new suspect is named in the Stephen Lawrence murder. Home Office declare. This is a fun one. Did cost £63,000 more to remove migrants than keep them. <gasps> wow. So we'll spend six, 63k more to boot them out. Out fucking standing. Just really just money, no object, clearly. Money is no object. Got to get them out. Just have to get them out. And lastly, senior doctors in England vote to strike over pay. Um, I think the nurses were supposed to as well, but there was a low low vote turnout, which is very unfortunate. But um, yeah, hopefully they all get their pee and all get what they deserve. Shout out to all the workers in every fashion. And uh, let's begin with the film segment. Um, and this is kind of just, you know, something that, um, you know, I saw Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, like, you know, when it came out in the, I think like the first week or so. And um, I loved it. It's really just as a film, outstanding film. Um, just really, really fucking good. This really, really absurd um, from a lot of angles. If you if you if you just wanted to talk about the visuals, you could. If you wanted to talk about the storyline, you could. If you wanted to talk about the multiverse nature of it, you could. The the voice acting, you could. It's just so much to chew on. Um, but there's one specific um, side of it via this article uh, by Anscape, written by David Dennis Jr. Called Across the Spider in Across the Spider Verse, Miles Morales finds community in heroes who look like him, and um, I feel like this is a good um, alternative way to look at it as well. And that's that's the thing about this film. It's really such a. I like the films where you can look at it in different ways, you know, and people can interpret it in different ways, but still everyone enjoys it. Um, so yeah, it's really good stuff. Um, if you do hear 
ticking, like um, you know that connection that. Apologies, um, my Wi-Fi ain't working, so I'm going completely uh via mobile hotspot on my laptop and across obviously to my phone as well. So I'm purely on data here. So if you hear it, that is not you going mad. That is my phone. Just I'm trying to keep it as far away from the mic as possible, just so don't get that feedback. But if there is. You just, I'm forewarning. Um, I'm just hope to. Uh, I'll try. I'll try and find in the edits as well if I can, and eliminate them for you. But um, can't make can't make you promises. But anyway, let's jump by. <sighs> Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is my favorite comic book movie ever, surpassing its predecessor, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which had previously held the top spot in my heart. One reason I love the franchise is because it goes beyond the skin deep idea of representation that comes from just seeing black faces on screen. Instead, the movies feel like they're speaking directly to me as a black comic book fan. Across the Spider-Verse takes that relatability further by showing how black folks look out for each other, protect each other, and defend each other, especially in spaces where so few of us exist. Across the Spider-Verse centers around 15-year-old Miles Morales, trying to find community. He feels lonely because he can't tell his family about his true identity as Spider-Man, the rest of the Spider-People are dispersed throughout other worlds, and Miles longs to be with people who can relate to him. But when Miles finally finds his tribe, things don't quite turn out how he hoped. The film culminates in an adventure that ultimately has him trying to get home after being transported to a multiverse where the Spider Society rules. The Spider Society is a collection of spider people from every corner of the multiverse. There's a spider pig, Lego Spider-Man, a cowboy Spider-Man, and of course, black folks like Miles who were bitten by radioactive spiders and became heroes as well. Still, those black spider people are minorities in the vast multiverse of spider beings. And when Miles needs help, it's the black characters who stand by him. The first character to do so is Marco Kess, known as Spider Bite, a, super, a hero from a universe where people essentially live in the metaverse, loaded in their consciousness online while their avatars move through the world. Marco strikes up a friendship with Miles when he arrives in Nueva York, uh, where the spider society is located. They're friendly and flirt awkwardly, but there's something deeper. Later in the movie, where Miles is in, when Miles is in trouble, most of his closest friends have betrayed him, and he needs to escape. It's Margot who helps him. As the person who runs the Spider Society's teleportation device, she's responsible for making sure Spideys can travel throughout the multiverse. When Miles tries to utilise the pool to get back home, it's up to Margot to stop him. Instead, she helps him escape. Not only was it the right thing to do, it's a sign of solidarity with a black boy in trouble. When I was in the theatre, the audience erupted at her act of defiance and help for Miles. I've been thinking about Margot a lot, as that exchange reminded me of my own experiences. I think back to my time as a graduate student at Northwestern University when I was the only black man in my journalism class. I remember sometimes feeling misunderstood and targeted, like Miles felt during the film. And I remember the community of black folks within the program and the city of Evanston that made sure I survived. In particular, I remember the black professor who stood up for me when I was under fire. I remember the black women in financial aid and admissions who saw me heating up lean cuisines around Thanksgiving, told me I was getting skinny, and brought me to to go place from their holiday meals. I remember the way my black women classmates gave me the same knowing nods Margot gave Miles and helped helped me push through. One beautiful aspect of the community that saved Miles is that the movie didn't rely on the trope of solely having black women, the black woman as the benevolent Benevolent, I keep bottling benevolent the first time, I always have to say it at least twice. Benevolent, saviour. Hobie Brown, dubbed Spider-Punk, also came through for Miles. 
Hobie, an anti-capitalist, black British punk rocker, seemed not seemed to not have any emotional tie to much of anything throughout the film. He enjoyed the anarchy of it all and didn't really want to conform to a system. But it wasn't until he saw the way Mars mis- was mistreated that he chose to bail on the entire Spider-World mission. It wasn't lost on me or any black person I talked to about the film. Then a whole multiverse of Spider-People who turned their backs on Mars, including his best friends Peter B. Parker and Gwen Stacy, who are white, two black characters essentially guaranteed his freedom. Not only is this an affirming, powerful moment about black community, it's a moment we rarely see in black comic book spaces. The history of superhero teams has shown us that many only have space for one or two black members. X-Men had Storm and or Bishop. The Justice League had the Green Lan- Black Green Lantern. The Avengers had Black Panther. We've already seen comic book stories that mimic the real world of being one of a handful of black members on a mostly white team. Across the Spider-Verse showed us what that looks like. That familial instinct to look after one another can happen in office building among nine to fivers or a universe where superpowered heroes run rampant. That skin folk being kin folk is a nexus experience that spans the multiverse. Across the Spider-Verse is full of moments that nod directly to his black audience. The gag about Mars apologising for endorsing baby powder is a perfect example. It's why the movie is sure to spawn a generation of black kids who have a superhero they see themselves emulating. And it's why the movie is also for adults who have been reading these characters our whole lives waiting for stories about how black folks actually act towards each other. We've finally gotten that with the Spider-Verse series. And I agree, you know. Um, I I feel the... I feel Hobie is definitely, for me personally, um, is just the best character, bar none, in that whole, in the whole trilogy. Yes, it's going to be a trilogy. Um, spoiler alert. But I, I just... Uh, he just sticks so he just sticks so warmly to me, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that that that's about right. That's good. I like it. The 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 Cockney explanation. Oh my gosh, just that little bit, just that little that little explanation it was so good. And I, I wanted so much more of that. Um, but yeah, man, fuck it, man. I'm gonna see if there's a spider punk comic about. Like honestly, I'm I'm fucking I fuck with him so heavy. Um, but. Yeah, man, I really, I do really respect that entire element um, of Spider Verse and how they genuinely lean into it, and uh, I find that really respectable. And um, I hope there is elements of that in the third. I don't know whether there will be, but um, regardless if there is or not, I just just having this means a lot, definitely, and uh, you know. I do feel that, you know, the skin folk, kin folk thing is um, something that I feel sometimes can be um, a bit too binary in, you know, regular society and regular life because, you know, there are, you know, you can find homies everywhere, you know what I mean? They don't have to be, they don't have to be your exact skin colour or have your exact, uh, you know, genetic makeup, right? You know, uh Indian, I have Indian friends are homies. I have white friends are homies. I have my best friend is is a Jamaican dude, right? And you know, that's uh, that's kind of how I operate. But but it does hit different. I will say it does genuinely hit different when. Um, and I won't. I I personally personally, this is me. It does have to be everyone? This is just me. When it's a non-white person, I do feel it just hits different. I don't just link it to just black people, although 
that's definitely it definitely hits different in a special way but um when it's non white oh yeah man it just really it really feels special it really feels special that just that moment just that moment of relatability means a fuck ton it really just means a lot and to have it in a film of that magnitude of that of that pop- current popularity of the zeitgeist and one that will that ha- along with the first in- first uh, first uh, spider spider verse film both of them really changed the game you know in a lot of ways in the ways i mentioned before in terms of how good it was and how many you know layers you can peel back and actually want to enjoy talking about um, but that that shit right there that hidden aspect that only some of us can understand hell yeah here for that all day every day So hop into music and uh, this is one that might might age very horribly um, <laughs> there might be a, there might be an album that comes through uh, you know very soon and immediately just consider this whole thing obsolete and uh, this whole conversation but it's still a conversation I feel like is worth having in some ways um, and you know what you, you probably know where I'm gonna go with this in terms of my thoughts towards it but it's an interesting conversation to have um, so this is written by Andre G. Via Rolling Stone. It's called Rap Eyes Haven't Topped the Charts This Year. Does it really matter? Uh, so this dropped in mid-June, and I'm obviously recording very close to July. Um, maybe, yeah, 29th. Yeah, so, you know, a couple days out of July. Um, so, you know, it might happen. Who knows? Uh, in the next week. But um, so far, it hasn't happened, and that's the first time it hasn't happened that a, an album hitting the uh, rap, hip-hop album Hitting the US Billboard 200 by the month of June. That hasn't happened since 1998, so it's been a while. Uh, but anyway, that's the precedent set for you. Let's get into it. On Tuesday, Billboard published a piece speculating on why hip hop hasn't had a number one album or single within the first half of 2023. The report set off a flurry of chatter from industry observers and rap fans drawing their own conclusions as to what the right answer, what the answer might be. Is the dearth of rap hits? Uh, is the dearth of rap hits this year a matter of market share, artist deaths, incarceration, or stagnant charts? Most people who think the occurrence is no big deal are chalking up to a lack of releases by major rap stars. Consider this a small sample of chart-topping stalwarts who haven't released an album this year. Kendrick, Drake, J. Cole, Louis Vert, Playboy, Kai, Lil Baby, Future, Eminem, Cardi B, Megan Stallion, Nicki Minaj, and Tyler Crowe. In effect, there's a sect of onlookers viewing this circumstance akin to a baseball lineup, where the half of the order hasn't stepped up to bat. In their eyes, it's only an issue if we get albums from genuine rap superstars and still don't have like have a number one. But there are others noting that the lineup would be a lot deeper if not for the rap community's unfortunate losses. Pop Smoke has the ghastly distinction of having released a posthumous debut album with Shoot for the Stars, Land on the Moon which demonstrated that he had the charisma and skill set to evolve beyond the New York drill scene in a manner similar to Ice Spice. Juice World's Race for Love debuted at number one in 2019, nine months before his tragic death. Triple X Tentacion was uh, one of the most polarizing eyes of the 2010s, but 17 and question mark, two albums released before his June 2018 death, went to number two and number one on the chart respectively. Mac Miller had a number one al- album with 2011's Blue Slide Park, 
and has grown in infinitely as an artist up to the point of his tragic death in September 2018. A scene can't keep losing brilliantly talented 20-somethings and think there will be no communal effect. Consider the shadow that will be cast over a sports league if, God forbid, it lost a handful of its most promising players in less than a decade. The one I saw Rico case has also hindered two artists. I, I feel like I need to put a pin in that, just that analogy. I feel like it's a bit loose there, but we'll get into it. Uh, the Wild Cell Rico case has also hindered two artists that could have made a mark on the charts this year. Young Thug had two straight Billboard 200 toppers with so much fun and punk before he was ensnared in the sprawling indictment last May. Gunner was primed for the best uh, year of his career with Pushing P and DS Forever and his DS Forever album both topping the charts last year. But now his reputation is marred with fans who are upset. He took an Alfred plea in the YSL case. Time will now tell. Uh, time will tell how his just relief. Uh, just released a Gift of Curse album will perform. Um, and also, side note, um, Young Thug did drop an album recently, so that might also hit number one. Who knows? Um, anyway. And then there are popular artists who've alienated themselves with their actions. The Baby was also already facing criticism for a stagnant sound in 2020, but he's meant his commercial decline with homophobic comments at Rolling Loud in Miami 2021 that he waited too long to apologise for. He's never reached the same commercial heights. Kodak Black, NBA Youngboy, Louis Vert have all released albums and singles this year but aren't breaking through with fans who don't want to support artists accused of abuse. Beyond the gloomy aspects of rap fandom, others have fixated on the general stagnation of the Billboard Hot 100 in 2023. There have only been five singles to top the Billboard Hot 100 all year. The Weeknd, Dariana Grande's Die With You, Jimin's Like Crazy, and Scissors Kill Bill, as well as Miley Cyrus's Flowers and Morgan Wallen's Last Night. The last two songs alone have collectively taken four of the six months. There have been rap songs that have reached top five of the Hot 100, including Lil Durk and J. Cole's All My Life, Drake's Search and Rescue, and Ice Spice's Princess Diana. But none of those have been able to supplant Cyrus's and Borland's dominance. There are others who couldn't care less about any of the industrial permutations, chart performance indica- indicates. We can endlessly speculate why there hasn't been a number one rap single this year, or we could ask the more pressing question, do rap artists' absence from the charts actually matter? Does anyone, have you noticed how my inflection has just like risen a little bit? Yeah, you wonder why. <laughs> Does anyone need to clamour to go somewhere Wallen has been? The music industry has been exposed from numerous underhanded ploys for chart topping over the years, merch bundles, YouTube clips that looped hooks, and other schemes yet to be discovered. Streaming farms are so recognised, hello, Time to put my tin foil hat on. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Let's put on the streaming farm, streaming farms tin foil hat back on the fucking head. Uh, the streaming farms are so recognised that Jake Cole rapped about them on Twenty One Savage crack track a lot, where he pointed the ass how many faking they streams, getting them plays from the sheet from machines. The charts have long been a charade where labels make themselves feel better about the bankability of their big money investments by investing more money into the illusion of dominance. There are rap albums like Navy Blue's Ways of Knowing, Danny Brown and JPEG Mafia's Scaring the Hose, or Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel's Maps. They won't sniff the top of the charts, through no fault of theirs, yet are more compelling than most albums that bested them. Uh, raps have, rap has permeated pop music so deeply that the remnants of rap DNA are apparent even without explicit reputation. In a manner similar to the Grammys, the Billboard Conversation is a consequence of rap's industrial assimilation. We clamour and stew of a dignification 
that don't even cover enough hip- enough of hip-hop's vastness to be legitimate indicators of success. Topping the charts isn't about a song's mass appeal as much as it about much as it is about a corporation's ability to engineer the optic of consumption. Perhaps it's poetic. This is occurring alongside hip-hop's 50th birthday. The rap gods are calling on us to break free from the Matrix. After all, there was no way to counterfeit what went off at the Park Jam. Let's keep that same energy in 2023 and beyond. Maybe we should be happy that we haven't yet been force-fed any bland generic singles optimised to placate flyover country. <sighs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Perfect, perfect end right there. Um, literally just what I was going to end with, to be honest, and just say that how about we just enjoy the good shit that we get. If you And, and, and hey man, if you're a fan of Louis Yvert, you're a fan of Louis Yvert. You know what I mean? I can't stop you. Does it? Do you really care the if if he gets number one or not? Do you enjoy? How about you just enjoy the fucking music that you like? If you like Gunner, if you like Young Thug, go for it. Listen to their fucking music. If you if they get number one, then you can celebrate that if you want. Don't know why you would. Oops, hit my mic. Um, don't know why you would because you're not getting paid to do so. Um, but you know it's an achievement for a lot of people. And I get it. Um, but, you know, if you like it, you like it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it just listen to Scaring the Hose. Go for it, man. It's a good fucking album. It's wacky, but it's all right. And, you know, again, as someone that listens to several albums a week, several new albums a week, and discovers new people every other week, there's good shit out there. Guess what I'm going to say next? You just have to find it. That's There you go. There we go. I said it right. So I want to get, to that, back, get back to that sport point. Um, you know, I get what he means from a commercial standpoint, right? That, you know, if, if, if let's just say 10 people that were, you know, built for number one success every single time they drop and for whatever reason, whether it be death or jail or whatever, that they just stop doing so. Yeah, that's going to cause cause a bit of a vacuum. But it's a little bit different when it comes to, you know, sports teams and stuff like that, where, you know, if, if the top, if top 10, if like, let's say, say the 10 of the top 40 players in the NBA just disappeared for whatever reason, then will snap, right? I mean, that, that's not half, but you know what I mean. All right. <laughs> just say, just say, let's say, say one of one out of four of the top 40, right? Of a quarter of the top 40. Disappeared, Thanos snap, disappeared, right? Um, you know, the game will still be the game. And obviously, you know, there will be a, again, a ma- an even, in my mind, a more major vacuum because I feel people will, f- if people, uh, if, if labels especially, if labels want to find somebody else, they will happily go do that. They will find a replacement. They will find another hit maker, right? Come rain or fucking shine, okay? There are so many people that are talented and just waiting for that one opportunity, that one track, that one album to actually get that kind of pop, right? That um, it's kind of endless. I would, I would say, I would hazard to get, I would hazard to say, it's kind of endless. The possible list you can find of of talented people in music, a little bit harder when it comes to you know world class basketball. Um, but apart from that, big ups Andre G. Banger article, um, and you know, 
break from the fucking shackles, guys. Please, please. Charts don't matter. I've been saying this for over a decade. Charts don't matter. Like who you like and branch out from there. It's a very simple, very simple equation. If you want more music and you want the music you like, just go via the artist you like already and just branch out from there. Look at the related artists. Go from there. And by the time you know it, you'll have like five artists within one search. If you search for like an hour of related artists and listen to a couple of tracks and you like them, just blindly follow. Just blindly click a follow on uh, on whatever stream platform you're on. Just click follow, boom. It's easy as that. And then when they drop an album or an EP or a single, give it a spin. And if you don't like it, then don't follow them again. But, you know, give them a fucking chance, right? And it, most of the time it works for me. So that's just that's just my advice to you. But please, please, please. Um, while I'm kind of being hypocritical saying this because I'm doing an article where they're talking about this, Charles don't matter. <laughs> we shouldn't be sweating about Charles. It's, it really doesn't fucking matter, to be honest. hop on to our first of two society topics uh, segments and uh, again like I said at the beginning this is going to be all about Windrush and uh, I've got two great pieces um, from The Voice who also celebrated 40 years and um, big ups to The Voice and um, yeah I just wanted to get into these um, in celebration of Windrush, uh, Windrush Day which was last week and all the celebrations that happened throughout the week um, and uh, there's plenty more they're still going, exhibitions, uh, talks, really good stuff all over the shop. Um, and uh, yeah, man, just really good stuff about. Um, but I, would, I just wanted to get into this and just read a couple of, you know, just things to things that we should um, big up some Windrush generation for. And um, this first one um, is about their civil rights battles, um, which we called Windrush Generation Civil Rights Battles. Um, it's written by Vic Motoon. Or, uh, or correct me if if I'm wrong. It might be Matune, but I'm gonna say Matune for, for the meantime. And uh, yeah, let's jump right in. When you mention the civil rights movement, what comes to mind for most people is the struggle for equal rights under the law that took place in America and saw its leaders such as Don Martin Luther King Jr. and Medgar Evers uh, rise to world prominence. But the racism and discrimination faced by African Americans was echoed in post-war Britain. The new arrivals frequently faced housing discrimination, being forced to pay landlords higher rents, or uh, like that's changed, for overcrowded and unsanitary living conditions, and signs like no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Uh, well, the other way, but you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, were not uncommon uh, in 1960s Britain. The Windrush generation struggles sparked the birth of a grassroots activist movement aimed at achieving racial equality and civil rights. It was a prominent, it was a movement that led to huge changes in society, among them the passing of landmark race relations legislation and the election of black and minority ethnic members of parliament. Among those who made a significant impact in the early years of that movement, Claudia Jones, an activist and journalist born in Trinidad and Tobago. In her youth, she migrated to the United States, where she became a communist, political activist, feminist, and black nationalist. 
but facing persecution by the US authorities, she was deported in 1955, later finding refuge in Britain. Arriving in London at a time when the black community was steadily growing, Jones recognised its need to get organised if racism was to be effectively tackled. She was, driving, she was the driving force behind the launch of the West Indian Gazette in March 1958, the first major black newspaper in Britain, located above a Brixton barbershop. Four months after the newspaper's launch, riots erupted in Notting Hill, West London. The area's Caribbean, large Caribbean community had became a target for open hostility of white working-class youth, commonly referred to as teddy boys. Racial tensions were also fueled by right-wing political groups, such as the British Union of Fascists, uh, who tried to rally locals with the slogan, Keep Britain White. The riots, which followed an earlier outbreak of racial violence in Nottingham, led to the hospitalisation of three black men for several weeks. The Notting Hill racial riots, as media refer- racial riots, quote-unquote, as the media referred to them, at the time shot the country into realising that the racial tensions that existed in Britain were not so different from those in the American South. Determined to find solutions, Jones began launching events that emphasised the richness of Caribbean culture and history, in direct response to the hostility displayed by white racists. The events she organised are widely seen as the forerunners of the first Notting Hill Carnival in 1964. Another person who played a key role in campaigning for the rights of black people in the 1960s is Paul Stevenson. In 1963, Stevenson, uh, then a 26-year-old teacher, led a boycott against the Bristol, Bristol Omnibus Company. Black Bristolians, largely based in the St. Paul's area of the city, faced discrimination in housing, employment and violence from white British teddy boy gangs. The West Indian Association was formed to try and address these challenges. One of its primary concerns was the Bristol Omnibus Company's colour bar policy, which denied employment to black and Asian workers. Uh, inspired by the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955, Stevenson organised a 60-day bus boycott that gained national media exposure and substantial public support. The politicians and church groups were among those who backed the campaign. On August 28, 1963, the company finally lifted its employment colour ban, a decision which was announced on the same day as Martin Luther King's uh, iconic I Have a Dream speech. The Bristol bus boycott is widely credited with influencing the introduction of the Race Relations Act in 1965, which prohibited racial discrimination in public spaces. Stevenson continued to make headlines when he faced trial for his refusal to leave a pub until he was served a beer. However, activists found the 1965 Race Relations Act inadequate, as it failed to address discrimination in housing and employment. Pressure groups emerged with a determination to amend the legislation. Among them was the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination, CARD, a group inspired by MLK's visit to Britain in December 64. CARD also arose from the frustration over the major political parties' seeming, seeming lack of action against racial discrimination. Among its founding members were the Trinidadian historian C.L.R. James, Dane Jocelyn Barrow, who became CARD's general secretary, and its chair, Dr. David Pitt, a doctor who had moved from Britain to Britain from Grenada. Grenada, sorry. Uh, in 1959, Pitt had become the first person of African Caribbean heritage to stand as a parliamentary can- parliamentary candidate representing Labour in Hampstead. Under Pitt's leadership, Card adopted the lobbying techniques of America's NAACP, which involved urging Card members to write to their local MPs in an effort to raise awareness about ongoing discrimination. Cars 1966 Summer Project exposed the weaknesses of the 1965 Race Relations Act, 
The initiative involves sending students to test housing and job opportunities, revealing widespread racial bias. Over 150 companies were filed, highlighting the need for additional legislation. Several national newspapers cover Carr's testing campaign and publish editorials in favour of extending the Race Relations Act. The campaign led to the 1968 Race Relations Act, banning discrimination in housing, employment and public services. Pitt went on to become the first black chair of the Greater London Council. He later became a life peer in the House of Lords, where he played a leading role in campaigning for the introduction of the 1976 Race Relations Act. Dane Barrow became a prominent figure in the fields of race equality, education and public service, with notable roles in the BBC and a number of educational institutions. She received numerous awards for her work, including the OBE in 1972. However, despite success, Card was short-lived. Its, its emphasis on including white liberals and establishment figures as part of its efforts to mobilise the community alienated an emerging generation of radicalised activists. In the late 1960s, a shift occurred as young people inspired by the black power movement in the US challenged discrimination more overtly. The movement was fuelled by increasing racism in Britain. Politicians like Wolverhampton South MP Enoch Powell blamed immigrants for a range of social and economic issues and attracted controversy with his Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. Hmm. Does that remind you of anything in recent times? Hmm. Well, well, blaming immigrants for a range of social and economic issues. Hmm. Who, who else does that hmm. in contemporary politics? Hmm. Although not a member of part uh, of of the government, uh, Powell's agenda was uh, reflected in legislation that was passed by such as the uh, passed by such as the 1971 Immigration Act, which restricted the ability of people from the Caribbean, Asia, and Africa to immigrate to Britain whilst favouring my white migrants, yeah, which basically effectively ended the Windrush generation. You know, because I feel like most of them go from you know from. Uh, the beginning to 71 they kind of end it at 71 as you know a generation um so uh, maybe that's maybe that's why um in 1970 black power activists organized a march in notting hill to protest against uh, police harassment and the repeated raids on the mangrove restaurant a cultural hub founded by frank critchlow despite the raids no evidence of legal activity was ever found critchlow trinidadian migrant and businessman tried to address the situation through legal channels Dark as hell, a young black activist and writer who had moved to the UK from Trinidad to study law played a prominent role in organising protests against the mangrove raids. Inspired by the American Black Panthers and his Trinidadian roots, he urged Critchlow to take more direct action to challenge, in the, police's, challenge the police's actions. Howell led 150 protests on a peaceful march to uh, protesters, sorry, on a peaceful march to Notting Hill police stations in ni- August 1970. However, heavy-handed policing saw the march end in violence. The subsequent trial of the Mangrove Nine attracted widespread public, uh, public and media attention when Howe and the other defendant, Althea jones Quint, chose to represent themselves. They also requested an all-black all black jury, although the request was denied, two black jurors were chosen. During the trial, evidence of police brutality and racism emerged. After 55 days, and all, four, all nine defendants were found innocent of inciting a riot. The jury rejected the police claims that the mangrove was a criminal den. Their acquittal marked a significant triumph for black protests. The mangrove nine's bravery and defiance in the face of heavy-handed policing empowered civil rights activists and others in the black community with the knowledge that institutional racism could be successfully challenged. When Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott became the first Caribbean Heritage 
First Caribbean Heritage MPs to enter the House of Commons in 1987, it was heralded as an event that helped change the face of politics in Britain. Along with their fellow newly elected Labour MPs, Keith Vaz and Paul Boateng, they blazed a path for other black minority ethnic MPs to follow. It was a journey that had begun with the rise of the black power movement in the late 60s and 70s and a huge impact of the mangrove night case. It continued with trade unit activism, anti-apartheid campaigns and a grassroots community response. Uh, cuts to public services and a growing race and class divide. The riots were riots of the 1980s were a turning point that awakened a disinterested Britain to the demands of marginalized uh, of marginalized black communities. The decade also saw the emergence of a powerful network of black minority ethnic councils and council leaders pushing for the adoption by the major political parties, Labour in particular, of strategies to address racial inequality. Black activists advocated for greater representation within the Labour Party, leading to the la- launch of the Labour Party Black Sections in 1983. Many of its leading lights were either born in the Caribbean or had parents from the islands. This included people like journalists and act- activist Mark Wadsworth and Bill Morris, who went on to become Britain's first Black Trade Union General Secretary when he was elected to lead the Transport and General Workers Union in 1992. During his illustrious trade union career, Morris tackled a number of issues that affected black workers. A relentless determination of visionaries like Claudia Jones, Paul Stevenson, and organisations such as the Labour Party Black Sections paved the way for today's black and minority ethnic MPs. However, as the country gears up to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Windrush generation, questions remain over the future of this movement. The black voluntary sector, which once served as a vibrant platform for aspiring activists, local councillors and MPs, has suffered severe blows due to government funding cuts in recent years. Excuse me. While there are some who believe that this had led has led to a fading excuse me, to a fading of grassroots activism, others believe that campaigning zeal lives on in a new generation of young people who share their ideas about creating a fairer and more equal society on social media. I say that the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement in recent years following the 2020 death of George Floyd has ensured that the flame lit by the likes of Jones, Howe and Grant still burns brightly. See, I always read these and I'm so fascinated by um, by the... I, 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 I always wonder if I'm kind of getting... Uh, I'm trying to put my words carefully, but not like, not blinded, but like, um, you know. Okay, I'll ask, it, I'll ask it in this way. Was everyone, you know, privy to this? Was everyone part of this? Don't know why I'm playing with the coin in the background, but yeah. Um, was everyone privy to this, you know? I'm talking about, you know, other, you know, just general local black people. Like, was everybody... Were people in Manchester, were black people in Manchester or Birmingham reading up on the Mangrove Nine, you know? I always wonder that, I always have those kind of questions, that it was it as, you know, it makes it, it the, whole, the whole thing makes it sound so, you know, unified and so, um, yeah, it just makes everything sound so unified, you know, and how that history is purported. But I always, I always wonder if, I wonder because, it's not like that now, you know. It's not. There's 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 black people, you know, on TV saying the complete opposite, and it's fucking cringe, you know. 
Saw some video about uh about like Tre- Trevor Phillips, I think his name was, some dude. Um, and you know, he's he's just ugh, he's just on talk TV chatting garbage, and I'm just like, ah, bruv, you're how old? Like, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? You know, there's you know, there's there's, there's uh of colour MPs, you know, about um doesn't have to be black, but there are off colour MPs that are just um, you know, completely I don't know, not not doing what I feel like, you know, if it's if it's, you know, purely a racial thing, then why are they doing this particular thing? You know? And, you know, race is a social construct. I know that. That's a fact, right? Um, if you don't know that, please hopefully that's not the first time, you know, you've been told that. But it's just something I always think about. Um, but, you know, not to not to bring down the entire, you know, Windrush generation and obviously their and and uh, the moves they made because fuck, you know, just those names alone making that much change is very uh, that that makes me optimistic. You know that you don't need it doesn't need it, it needs a big name, but obviously there's you know people behind them that are that put in the work as well. Uh, those unknown names, and I appreciate those people as well. Um, but yeah, I just always wonder. I just always wonder if it was as widespread as, you know, the history makes it sound. Anyway, on to the next one. And to finish, uh, we uh, go on to a little more specific element of um, how the winter generation um, affected and changed the UK in some ways. Um, this is by Sinai Fleary, um, also via The Voice, and it's called We Laid the Foundation, Foundations of the Transport System. So let's jump right in, because I recently, um, I haven't read it yet, but there's an article by um, Anoush Jekelian, I think her name is, uh, by The New Statesman. And um, basically it's covering, she covered how um, the Tories have kind of uh, eliminated a ton of bus routes and for some reason a disproportionate amount of them um, come from Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency. So she looks into that and it's very fascinating. But my point being, public transport is so fucking important and there there should only be more. That's the only question. The only question is, there should be more, you know? Should there be more? Yes. Should there be less? Fuck no. Like, why? <laughs> there should be more public transport at every possible turn. I'm always going to advocate for that because public transport benefits everybody. Trust me on that. Anyway, let's jump right into this. Let's finish off. Passengers on the Empire Windrush paid approximately £28 to travel to Britain, which is equivalent to £1,000 today. I did not know that. Uh, many of those eventually found employment working on the transport network across the United Kingdom. And I want to know how many of them, like, because the main two I keep seeing is transport and the NHS. I wonder what the what the percentage is on that front. But anyway, uh, many of those transport network in my 56, 10 years before Barbados gained independence from Britain, a formal agreement between T, uh, London Transport, LT, and the Caribbean country was created, which allowed the direct recruitment of Barbadians. The direct recruitment program by LT was the first of its kind in the Caribbean, 
It was a blueprint for other organisations such as British Rail and the NHS, there you go, who would later adopt similar recruitment models. The Barbadian government paid for the fare of new recruits to Britain, which the workers would pay back over a two-year period. It is estimated LT recruited about 6,000 employees directly from the region until 1970, with applicants also applying for work from Trinidad and Jamaica. According to the London Transport Museum, initially the new Caribbean employees worked as bus conductors, station staff, and in track maintenance and building work. Many of the Windrush generation were ex-servicemen and women who were well-educated and had many skills. However, due to racism and discrimination, they were often denied promotions and had to do low-paid jobs. By working long hours, the workers managed to save for tickets to be able to send for children or partners who may have been initially left behind, as the policy of LT at the time was to just employ single people. There was a smaller black presence in Britain before the arrival of Empire Windrush. In 1910, Jamaica-born Joe Clough, I'm going to say Clough or Clough, I say Clough, um, yeah, uh, applied to work at London General Omnibus Company, another omnibus company, um, and started work as a spare driver. He eventually passed his bus driving test and became the first black London bus driver. Mr. Clough drove the number 11B bus between Liverpool Street in central London to Wormwood Scrubs in West London. He was born in Jamaica in 1887. I just realised this, by the way. They said 1910. This is mad early. (laughs) This is is before Windrush. This is wild. Alright, let's continue on. Um, Because, you know, that that is something I feel like people miss a lot. That, you know, there were black people in Britain before Windrush. Just so you know. It's not like like they all started coming here, like, you know, after the war. Anyway, uh, he was born in Jamaica in 1887. And became an orphan an early age, and became an ambulance driver in France for four years during the First World War. Ralph Straker was a bus conductor and was directly recruited from Barbados in 1957. Five years later, in May 1962, Barbadian Carl Hoyt was also recruited in the same role. Some Caribbean women also worked as bus conductors, like Nona Roberts, who was also directly recruited from the Caribbean, and worked on the buses from 65 to 94. Following the passing of the Equal Pay Act in 1970 and Sex Discrimination Act in 75, black women were able to begin training to become tube and bus drivers. One of the lesser known forms of employment that the Windrush generation did was working in the food canteens in the transport sector. These jobs were usually undertaken by Caribbean women who worked long hours in hot kitchens to feed thousands of transport staff. Eventually, the women suddenly introduced different flavours from back home to staff menus. In many British cities, uh, the Caribbean community faced widespread racism and discrimination in housing and employment. The Bristol Omnibus Company, um, I think I'll skip this because kind of talked about the uh, bus boycott. This is a couple of, it's only a couple of paragraphs, not too bad. Uh, the boycott was organised by Roy Hackett, Paul Stevenson, who was supported by Owen, Hen- Owen Henry, Audley Evans, Prince Brown and Guy Bailey in the West Indian uh, and the West Indian Development Council. After four months, the company was forced to back down and remove its discriminatory, discriminatory colour bar policy. The Bristol bus boycott is believed to have influenced the passing of the Racial Relations Acts in 65 and in 68. Uh, the Racial Act 65 was the first piece of les- legislation in the UK to address the prohibition of racial discrimination in public places. Expand- the Expanded Act in 68 focused on eradicating discrimination in housing and employment. Members of the Windrush generation were also also responsible for ensuring the trains worked properly and effectively. In 52, Wilston Samuel Jackson moved to London in 52 
to help maintain the trains. Don't know why she put it in 52 first, uh, twice there, but anyway. He was born in Jamaica in 27 and previously worked as a fireman. Ten years later, he became a train driver and even drove the flying Scotsman locomotive. Jamaican-born Wilson Samuel Jack... What? What? Why is this there twice? <laughs> okay, the, the article's there twice. The, the, the couple of paragraphs I just read, they're there twice. All right, anyway, uh, Mr. Jackson died in September 2018 at the age of 91 and was honoured with a prestigious blue plaque at the London's King's Cross station in 21, no, 2021. British Railways, was, uh, which was known as British Rail from 65, uh, operated most of the overground rail transport in Britain from 1948 to 1997. During, uh, during this time, many of the Windrush generation found work on the railways, with many actually helping to build them. The legacy of the Windrush generation can be seen and felt in the workforce across the UK's transport sector, and especially within LT's successor, Transport for London, TfL where over 30% of TfL employees are black or from another ethnic minority. Glenroy Watson is one of those workers who has worked on the transport network for over 44 years and has worked in, on all London Underground lines. He is currently a train driver in the Victoria Line. Speaking to The Voice, he said, quote, I joined the Underground as a guard. I started on the Central Line, then got transferred to the Northern Line, and then got transferred to Piccadilly, where I eventually became a driver. I have worked on every line on the underground, including what was once called the East London Line, which is now handed, uh, which is now, which has been now handed over to the under- overground. Unquote. Underground, overground. Good. Mr. Watson, whose parents are from Jamaica and Barbados, beams with knowledge of self uh, throughout this interview, and says he would describe himself as African because that's what I am. His father worked in the railway. But he didn't want a career in transport, especially working on the buses, because of the stereotype image associated with black people at the time. So he attended college and got a degree in electronics and landed a job at one of the biggest automobile engineering firms in Britain. However, Mr. Watson recalls his dream being cut short when he, be- quote, became a manager uh, a little bit too early for their liking, unquote. He told the voice that the company refused to pay him his correct salary and ended up leaving and updating his skills further to work as an en- engineer on the buses. In 1979, he joined the underground and, fu- and found workers from the Caribbean still face hostility, discrimination, or were shut out of some promotions and positions of authority. He said, quote, The bus conductor was the one who had to deal with the hostile passengers and the driver would be safe in his cab, unquote. Looking back at the early days of in his career, he said, quote, we had a grade called uh, Station Masters where I came on the railway and somebody said, well, hang on a minute, white people are going to have to call black people Masters, so it suddenly changed from Station Master to Station Manager. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's very, very funny. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, we can't call him Masters. Let's rename it Manager. That's funny. Oh, gosh. The train driver also believes that a, uh, a past policy, which meant if you travelled abroad on holiday, you couldn't go for another five years, was directly aimed at African workers. Mr. Watson claims that white managers severely resented that black workers would go away to Africa or the Caribbean for four weeks in the sunshine, whereas they were forced to holiday... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> They were forced to holidays in places like Southend. Oh, that's a why. Why Southend catches a stray though? Why is the why is the hometown catching a stray? Oh, that is so funny. That is f- 
fucking hilarious. Oh my god. <laughs> Big up Southend though. <laughs> not like the Caribbean. Definitely not like the Caribbean in any fashion. God damn it. Alright. Being an activist and trade unionist since his college days, Mr. Watson also uh, used his re- uh, voice to campaign against discrimination. He added, quote, I was the first ever representative for the NURRMT on London Transport Equality Board um, after we had exposed the racism due uh, to African to replace African and non- other non-white staff with new white managers. Uh, he added, over the years, African workers have improved the underground and have improved paying conditions, unquote. Now he believes children and grandchildren of the Windrush generation should be able to benefit from the improvements made to the system because of the fight and sacrifices of those who came before them. Uh, a quote I would like to say to young African people, it's a job worth getting into, he explained. Windrush 75 is a special occasion celebrating our past pioneers who lay the very foundations of our transport system and so other sectors uh, crucial to uh, British society. And with fearlessness and dedicated employees like Mr. Wilson, the celebrations will be even more special knowing London's transport system continues to be driven by Windrush energy and principles. In recent years, the transport, uh, London Transport Museum has held different exhibitions to celebrate its Caribbean employees. Last year, an exhibition entitled Legacies opened at the museum in Covent Garden, charting the immense contribution of Caribbean workers within the transport network in London since the 1950s. And the celebrations will continue this year to mark Woodrush 75 with a host of uh, museum-late events throughout the year where the public can explore the museum after dark. In July, the museum will host an event called Voices of London on the 14th of July in collaboration with Making of Black Britain, MOBB, which is the brainchild of broadcaster Diane Louise Jordan of Blue Peter to mark the 1948 Nationality Act. So there you go. That's another exhibition for you guys if you want to get into that one day. Um, on in, if you have a spare day in July. And um, yeah, man, just really, again, just wanted to highlight and um, you know wanted to pay respects and uh, you know recognize that you know it's not just it's it's in so many ways, so many, so many fashions that um, the Windrush generation actually genuinely changed this country for the better. Um, and um, you know. As a descendant of that, personally, um, I hope that I can just continue on with that same fire and uh, with that same perseverance, especially. I feel like that's an important part of it, that, you know, they all genuinely persevered through it, um, through odds that were stacked against them. And, uh, you know, big love to all of them, big love, big love to the whole generation and... Also, the African contingent that came, that's, you know, been coming uh, in more, more recent decades and what they're doing as well, um, it's really carrying on. And um, it's carrying on a, uh, a a legacy of progress and a legacy of, um, of, of you know, being correct, <laughs> to be completely honest, you know, being correct and being on the right side of history. Um, so, yeah, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, Shall I leave it there. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm a child saying it's been most good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for bits to use a track. And also thanks to Nappy Hive for bits to use Caravan for the interlude. You can find all of their links in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I have a interview drop in next week. So no regular show next week, but we'll have an interview coming. Um, hopefully rec- uh, getting that recorded on uh, this coming Friday. 
and uh, ready for you guys. Um, I'm going to post it on Wednesday because I'm also posting it on Digging in Digits. Um, so since that's dropping on Tuesday, that usually drops on Tuesday, and what's good drops on Thursday, I might as well meet it down the middle and drop it on Wednesday for all of you. Um, so whether, whether you listen to this or Digging in Digits or both, the interview will be there for you guys to listen to. So yeah, please stay tuned for that and follow and subscribe wherever you you know subscribe and stuff and review all that stuff and uh, keep this uh, train going with me keep joining the journey and with that said I hope you all have a good week I should always try and do the same but until next time take easy ladies and gentlemen